so we started a brand new sermon series on the book of James. And uh, talk is cheap, but faith is steep. And um, we're going to start, kind of walk through the book of James for the next four weeks. And so I'm going to start with chapter one and have a chance to preach and teach a little bit. I hope you learn something new. I always, once again, I, I was running yesterday and thinking about kind of an acronym to think about what I'm always striving to do as your pastor and when it comes to preaching. And I came up with the idea of TAP. And T represents teaching. I always try to teach something. Hopefully, you learn something new about the Bible each week. A stands for um, application. So hopefully, something I said or experienced in the, the worship hour that we have together that you can apply to your, your daily journey uh, week by week. And then P has to do with your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's something maybe speak to your heart during the week or something during the message that, or through the worship experience or the reading of the word or the, or the word being proclaimed in music that heart touches your heart. So T-A-P, I made that up. I thought that was actually pretty good. So here we go. All right. So James, uh, the first chapter. Uh, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because... You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12, blessed is anyone who endures temptation such as one who has stood the test and who will receive the crown of that of the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, you know, I mentioned the, the title of my, this the overarching theme for this week is talk is cheap, but faith is steep. And I, I thought it'd just be appropriate. And I'm going to read a little quote. And, and I, I just love this quote. I've read it before in the last you know, 12 years, two or three times. And it comes from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And, um, you know, if you know, if you know who Diedrich Bonhoeffer, but he's, um, he was, well, I think he's one of the greatest um, theologians in the modern era. And he was actually executed by Hitler. Um, uh, he actually died of somewhat of a martyr. Um, he actually died just about a month just before the World War II came to the end. It was such a tragedy. He was killed, executed in a very humiliating way. But he was just a gifted theologian. He wrote some really important things for us to, once again, hold on to. And so when I put together the sermon, began to put the sermon sets, uh, sermons uh, together, um, the whole idea about talk is cheap, but um, faith is steep. I-, I thought about this quote. So let me just read, because he, um, part of um, Bonhoeffer's theology, he has this perspective about cheap grace versus costly grace. And that's kind of the essence of his theology. So let me just give you a quick little summary. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but part of it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without required repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it a man will go and sell all that he has is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchants will sell all his goods 
It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ with which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Man, that's good. There's a difference between, you know, he calls the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. So I was thinking about this this week and um, reflecting upon uh, this, this text about, you know, thinking about uh, the book of James. And um, I, was, I always try to keep things uh, current and thinking about, you know, one of the things that James is reflecting upon is, you know, there's a sense of sacrifice that Christ has called us to. He's, he's trying to get the... By the way, the, the, this, the book of James is actually written to the early Christians, um, the first century. Um, James is considered the half-brother of Jesus. And so they're under all this great persecution. He's trying to get them, almost like Paul, trying to get them to hold on fast. But there was a sense of uh, maybe a misdirection, and, and James is trying to get them on the right track. So they have these like little bitty kind of little different phrases that we have throughout the book of James. It's only five chapters, but he's trying to help them kind of give them some guidance about the way in which Christ would really want them to live. And so I was reflecting upon that this last week, and I, I was watching the Masters um, tournament. And I, it was really very interesting this week because um, usually it doesn't work out this way, but one of the top amateurs, and um, well, actually it was the best amateur golfer and the world was um, actually invited to play in the Masters. And after like two rounds, he was in second place, which was just unheard of. The same, his name is Sam Bennett. And so, a um, matter of fact, we got a, here's a picture of Sam Bennett and um, uh, John Robb, who actually won. And so um, Sam actually ended up winning the, the tournament from the standpoint he was the top amateur who had qualified, and he came in first place. He actually came in 16th place overall, but he did really, really well. The only downside about that is that because he was amateur, he didn't get any money, which is about probably a real bummer, but anyway. But I'm pretty sure he'll do very well eventually. And so what I was, thought was interesting is I was watching him play golf this last week, because I'd never heard of Sam Bennett until last weekend, because he became this phenomenon. And if you watch the Master Tournament, you know that he continued to play pretty well, even to the very end. And so I was watching him tee off, and all of a sudden I saw um, this tattoo that was written on his, um, on his wrist. And I thought it was kind of interesting, and I, and, uh, I thought it was actually very interesting. I'm thinking, what did that really actually say? And I thought it was kind of like a, I thought, where did he go get that tattoo? Because it's really a bad tattoo, right? It looks like it didn't, you know, but there was a story behind that tattoo. And the story, well, this is what the tattoo said. Can you put that picture up of the tattoo? Don't wait to do something, pops. And the story behind that is that, um, Sam's father, his name was Mark. I think he was a dentist. He was a doctor. When he was the age of 45, he got Alzheimer's. And um, for the next seven years, he began to deteriorate. And then one day, um, on a really, really good day, um, about two years ago, just before he died, um, uh, Mark walked into the kitchen after taking a nap and um, even though he had a, well, somewhat of a cloudy mind, but he had a clear thought that day. And he looked at um, um, Sam and screwed him up as he looked in his son's eyes. And he says, hey, listen, don't wait to do something. 
And so what was very powerful about that, that was, um, it just blew him away because his father had really hadn't said anything like that to him in, in years. So he turned to his mother and his mother was stunned too because all of a sudden this came out of nowhere, don't wait to do something. So then he turned to his mother and says, mom, can you get dad to write that down for me? So he took out a piece of paper and a pencil. And then his mother is actually a middle school teacher. And she coached her husband through writing those five words. It took him 15 minutes to write, don't wait, do something. And then he took the piece of paper and he put it in his car and put it in the glove box and he saved it. And then after his father died, evidently, he took it and had it actually put on that piece of paper and took it to a tattoo parlor, and that's the reason why it's scribbled. And almost looks like a preschooler had written it. But every single time that Sam tees off, every time he chips out of the sand, every time he putts for the rest of his life, he's going to look down at his arm about something his father said to him. By the way, that was the last thing that Mark Bennett wrote before he died. Don't wait to do something. And you know, I thought that's a really powerful image that we find in the book of James. Is that James is encouraging these brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and trying to get them to focus on really where Christ wants them to be I just read just a piece of scripture just a minute ago, and one of the themes that we find right out of the gate is about, once again, finding a sense of maturity and peace um, right out of the gate when we find when we go through trials and tribulations and maturity. He also talks about this theme that we find here. He says, listen, don't blame God. Don't blame God for what you've done. It's not God's fault. You have to look at yourself. And I think that's a really powerful, so we find these little different kind of twists throughout things, and we're going to talk about them over the next four weeks, but right out of the gate, we find that, once again, James is trying to talk to these early Christians about really focusing in on, once a minute, don't wait to do something right. So I was reflecting upon this this week, and... Um, um, I had this image in my head, and I don't know where it came from. And I, I'll tell you, I, I think it goes back to the, to the Easter story. And um, it has to do with this, this door um, that Jeff happened to walk through just a few minutes ago. And, and so, you know, I used this door actually a few years ago about Easter. And I talked about the Easter, and I talked about, you know, the door of um, the gift of the resurrection. And everything hinges. I talked about the hinge on the door. You know, the, uh, the, hum the hinge of human history is pivots on Easter. The, the death could not hold him. So then I started reflecting upon this, this image about the door. And so I could not get this out of my head. So I woke up, I don't know, maybe Wednesday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I and mean, I started thinking about the door. And so the first image I had about, and I have, here's my little piece of paper. This, I do this all the time, by the way. I wake up in the middle of the night and I start writing things down because I'm always thinking about my next sermon. And so I started thinking about this idea about the door. And um, immediately when I started thinking about the door, I started thinking about, Let's make a deal, right, with Monty Hall. Does anybody remember behind door number one, two, three? Okay. So then I started thinking about, you know, the, the idea of the, the tomb could not hold Jesus. And, of course, there was this big stone. There was a door. 
And I love what Max Licato said about that one day. I read in one of his books, he, he talked about, he says, don't you think that if Jesus Christ, the power of Almighty God, that he could create the universe? Don't you think he could maybe move a tomb, I mean, move a, move a door away? I mean, you know, the whole idea of the stone. And, and the idea was that, I mean, did he really have to have the stone there or did he not need the stone? I mean, don't you think that maybe Jesus could have actually figured out a way to get out without even moving the stone? And maybe the reason why, as Locato says, maybe the reason why the stone was rolled away wasn't necessary to let Jesus out, because Jesus could have got out without the door being there or not. But maybe the stone was rolled away so people could look in and see what happened. I thought that was actually profound. So we had that door. Then we had the, um, I love the idea, once again, this, this post-resurrection story. And you go back and look at the Gospel of John. Once again, John's written so different. So you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptics. You got them seen together. And then you got John, who's written kind of in, an, in a little different way. You have this mysterious part of Jesus. It's a, I mean, Jesus is able, and here's what I love about the story. So after Jesus' resurrection, and according to the Gospel of John, he goes to the upper room. And, and so what's powerful is that John makes it really clear. Go back and read the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, and see what, what John has to say about a door. And so when you go look at this door, part of, that's part of the story, is that the disciples are all, and they're locked behind a door. He makes it really clear. And then all of a sudden, you find somehow mysteriously, Jesus just kind of, it's almost like he just walks right to the door. And how do you get in? The door's locked. But yeah, there's Jesus. Not only does he say that once, of course, you know, they, when they walk in, all of a sudden the disciples actually believe. There he is. He's actually alive, right? This is a wonder. But who's not there? Thomas. Downing Thomas, right? And so then Jesus leaves and he, Thomas shows up and the disciples say, you're not going to believe it. Jesus is really alive. This is amazing. Thomas says, I ain't going to believe it unless I see it, right? And then guess what happens? According to the gospel, John, guess Jesus shows up again a week later and he slips through the door again. Go back and read the story. It's amazing. The door is locked. They're afraid. Afraid that they're going to come get them. Jesus somehow mysteriously just walks right through the door and he turns to Thomas in that great line. He says, Thomas, come on over here and see for yourself. The little Greek there, I love that. Come and take your finger and put it in, the, in my hands Come and take your fist and thrust it into my side. And then Thomas, and by the way, this is one of the triumphal parts of the whole Gospel of John, and it comes on doubting Thomas's lips. He says, my Lord and my God. Mm. And then Jesus says, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who haven't had to see, but yet they believe. Can I move in on that? Man, I love that. The door. So we got a door at the resurrection. We got the door after the resurrection. And then Jesus says, so I went back and looked. And you know what? The, the whole idea about doors was actually a pretty big deal throughout the Old and New Testament. And I thought this was amazing because right out of the gate, John's in the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Hmm. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in out and find my pasture. I mean, over and over again, on the book of Psalms, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, the king of glory may come in. 
The book of Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And the book of Deuteronomy, I love this. You must love the Lord your God with, and serve him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And then the book of the, and then Moses writes, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And in the book of Exodus, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that the, the basin, and then touch the lintel of the two doorposts that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. So as I shared with you all before, you put blood on this side, and you put blood on this side, and you finish it right here, all the blood comes trickling down, which you have this image of the cross. Behold the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. There's something to that whole idea about the door, isn't it? The door. So then I, I woke up this morning, four o'clock in the morning, there it is. Don't wait to do something like care for your neighbor down the street. Make a difference in a child's life by feeding the hungry. Volunteer. Don't wait to do something like read your Bible. Invite somebody to come to church with you. Open the door of your heart. Do the right thing. James has this beautiful gift. If you read the book, and it's, listen, you, I hope that over the next three or four weeks, I hope you'll read through the book of James with me um, um, because it's just a short, it's only five chapters. But, you know, I love this idea about maybe just doing the right thing. Sometimes we struggle with that. That's part of what James is talking about. Hey, listen, don't blame God for your own shortcomings. Don't blame God for your own sinful ways. It's not God's fault. Look at yourself, man. Hmm. So I was thinking um, this last week, um, I was thinking about my, my kids. And um, by the way, let me just put that over here. This is, this is where this needs to be right there. Um, I was thinking about my kids this week, and um, uh, my kids used to read this book. Um, there was like a, a, a whole series of books. It was called Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I don't know if you all ever heard that. Matter of fact, here it is. Uh, I think there's like 15, 16 of them. And um, the fifth one was entitled The Ugly Truth. And, and um, it's um, a little, it's a story um, about um, Jeffrey. Um, and I think the reason why it sold, you ready? Why that book sold 275 million copies? Don't think about that. It's because there are a lot of wimpy kids out there. Now listen, I, you know, well, I read some of those, kind of read with my, as I was reading with my kids through these books. I think it makes us, gets us kind of in touch with our own inner self and we look at ourselves about the, our own wimpiness. Because I tell you what, I was a wimpy kid. I can relate to that. And so one of the great things about this story is that the story is actually like a diary. And he's, the kid's like, Jeffrey's like 12, 13 years old. And he's kind of going through a difficult time. And he's trying to fit into middle school. And let me tell you something. If you ever remember, you're kind of going through middle school. Man, that is a really difficult time when you're like 13 years old. And your life's changing. And everything's such a big deal. And there's all this drama. And you're going through puberty. And you're trying just to fit in, right? We all can relate to that. Matter of fact, my son, Jordan, bless his heart, he teaches 13-year-olds. Pray for that kid. I'm telling you. 
I mean, when you go through 13, you're 13 years old, you're just kind of like going off the deep end. I really believe, I really believe this. I was thinking about this this week on this morning. I think that every seventh grade teacher should have be paid twice as much money because they all got 13-year-olds to be able to take it. So the diary of the wimpy kid is, you know, it's that journey that he had when he's kind of just fitting, trying to fit in a life. And volume number five is the ugly truth. And you know what? I think that's one of the things that James is trying to get to is to get the people in the early church to confront their own ugly truth because they're trying to maybe change something that really, as James was saying, this isn't really the teachings of Jesus and you're trying to conform it and make it something it's not. So don't blame God. It's not his fault. Um, so I was thinking about this this week once again. And so I was thinking about this whole story about going through my own age, about 12 or 13. I, I guarantee you, everybody's got a 12 or 13-year-old story. So here's my story. I was the wimpy kid, and I wanted to fit in. And once upon a time, I don't think I've ever told, you know, I know you all have heard almost all my stories multiple times, right, the last 12 years. But my, my, the story was when I was about 13 years old, I remember going to um, Walt, Walt Disney World um, with some of my friends, and it was a church trip so we all loaded on the bus and we went to Walt Disney and so I two of my buddies they were there and once again they were cool I wasn't but I wanted to be cool and so they were um you know what's interesting when you go to Walt Disney World they have this uncanny way of when you come off a ride they put a gift store right there do you know how they strategically done that Okay, so we're coming up the Pirates of the Caribbean. We did the Pirates of the Caribbean. I'll never forget this. It's clear. It's, just a, it's like it was just the yesterday. So they come out, and we stop at the gift shop. And, you know, I think they, you know, they, I think I made me and my mom and dad gave me a little bit of money. And, and so they were walking around, and I watched the, my two buddies kind of strategically, once again, they started stealing things. Oh, I mean, one of them got like a little, I don't know, a little keychain, and the other one stole some sunglasses. And, and so I watched all this kind of unfold. And I, I started reflecting because cause I could have really easily, easily been sucked into that. And you know what? I always reflect upon that in my life. And I'm thinking, why did they really even do that? I think they just did it to be able to see if they could get away with it. And they did. My friend, when they got back on the bus at the end of the day, they, all the other kids say, wow, you must have bought a lot of things. Well, they didn't buy a thing. They stole it all. And you know what, when I think about that, and this is what I feel guilty about, I don't feel guilty. I didn't steal anything because my mom and dad taught me what was right from wrong and doing the right thing. I just did not fall into the trap. But I tell you what really bothered me and reflect on, and this happened, what, 50, almost 60 years ago, is that um, I feel guilty that I was a wimp and I didn't say anything. I wanted to be cool. I should have said, what are you all doing? You're a bunch of idiots. Don't you like you're going to get caught? Put that back. Silence. So anyway, haven't we all gone through these things in our life? Maybe, and it, just like Jeffrey and Dario, the wimpy kids, Sometimes we have to confront our own ugly truth and we have to look within. And this is exactly what James is saying in this first chapter. He's talking about, listen, and all throughout, you, we have to look within ourselves. And we shouldn't be blaming God. 
what I, what I really appreciate, because right out of the gate, he uses this quote. He says, saying, hey, listen, consider it joy wherever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And I mean, can't we all relate to that to some degree in our life? I mean, I, I can relate to that. The, the idea that um, um, the testing of faith um, can produce perseverance and the idea of maturity I want to be mature. I want to be a mature Christian. I, I, can, I, I know for a fact I'm more mature today than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years. I, it just comes through, I think, through life and wisdom, and we have to figure things out. And listen, stuff happens in life. Did you realize that stuff happens in life? Can I admit on that? And so sometimes stuff happens in life, and it can either, as my friend Don Piper says, it can either make us bitter or it can make us better, right? So James is talking about the, the idea of testing in our faith, or the idea of maturing our faith. And I, I you know, when I, I think about life um, and the trials and tribulation, um, once again, when you look at the words of trials and tribulation, they can be actually, they're testing. They're, uh, in the Greek, they literally can be interchangeable, the testing of our faith, the trials of our faith. And um, I can relate to that, and I, I can guarantee you that everybody in this room can relate to this, about our own trials and tribulation. I thought this was really interesting this last week. My son, Luke, was here um, visiting. Um, we flew him down from Hartford, Connecticut, and I'm, I'm really proud of Luke. I'm proud of my kids, but Luke's the first hindrance and became a doctor. And that, I just look at that kid, I'm thinking, Really, out of all my kids, I would not that that kid was going to do that, right? And so, but you know, he's a, a doctor of psychotherapy. He's working at a Hartford Hospital, and he also is working at UConn. And so, I asked Luke after the message. Um, he listened closely, and at least I think he was listening closely. And um, I said, "So, what'd you think?" And he says, "Dad, you know what? I thought it was pretty good." And I said, "Just pretty good." And uh, no, he says, "No, I thought it was pretty good." And I and I said, "What?" What resonated with you about that Easter message? And this is what Luke said. Dad, I really appreciated when you talked about the crucified moments of life. Mm. And the reason why I think that resonated with him is because every day he deals with people, person after person after person, that are dealing with their crucified moments. And Luke's job as being a doctor of psychology, a therapist, is to help them bring them to the light, to be able to address their own crucified moments they've gone through some kind of trauma or crisis and move them out of the dark hole of the darkness and that pain and move them towards something about hope and love and forgiveness. That's what he does. So I think the reason why Luke, out of all the things that I said last week about his old man's sermon, that's something how it resonated with him. So in this last week, I was talking to him, uh, I think it was Wednesday, and um, I said, how did class go tonight, Luke? Um, he teaches on Tuesday and Thursday. He says, Dad, you know what I told my kids this week? And I said, what's that, Luke? He says, you know what we were talking about? Because he said, some of them really want to be psychotherapists. And then um, I said, well, let me tell you something. And he told them all this. He says, you know, if you want to be a really good psychotherapist, you need to go to therapy yourself. Because let me tell you something. You have to look at yourself first 
before you think you can do anybody else any good. You have to address your own issues. You have to address your own concerns. You have to address your own crises in life and get a handle on that in order to be an effective therapist. So you know what really kind of starts with you. You have to look at your inner self in order to help anybody else. Hmm. I think he was onto something there. I think maybe that's kind of what James is really kind of hitting on. He says, listen, don't, don't blame God for your own shortcomings. For, you know, there, you have the whole seven deadly sins about pride and sloth and, you know, anger and all that. You know, there's all that kind of wickedness going on out there. And James hits that head on. He says, listen, you need to be able to look at your inner self and to be able to address that. That's where you need to be headed. I, I was thinking about this this like week, and I what I what I love about uh, James is he says, you know, let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, and not lacking anything. I love this part of the Greek because the word mature there means to complete or whole. In other words. When perseverance is complete, it forms us into the people God intended us to be in the first place. Let me say that again. You ready? When James is talking, he says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. James 1.4. And the little translation when it talks about maturity, in other words, when perseverance is complete, it forms into us the people that God really wants us to be. Everybody's gone through something in their life, right? We all have our own kind of crucified moments. I mentioned y'all last week and the idea that, you know, we've all have struggled and we all have to kind of look, I look deeper within ourselves. That's part of the theme that we find in the book of James. And you know what? I, I have come to a conclusion and I really believe this with my whole heart. We just came through Easter and one of the things that one of the things that we find in the book of James, and I really believe, and not only just in the book of James, but in the whole of the gospel in the New Testament, is that that God can actually take something bad in your life and redeem it. And that's part of maturing, isn't it? So for example, no wonder when I mean the, the critical part we find in the one of the climaxes of the New Testament was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, right? And then what does Jesus say? He says, not my will, but what? Thy will be done, right? I mean, this is kind of a critical point. And yet, so Jesus knows he's going to have to go through this horrific experience in life. And yet he chooses the, pain, the path of suffering for you and me. And so here's this horrific thing that happens on the cross, and yet the beautiful thing is that God and to his infinite wisdom and power can take that horrific thing and redeem it and make it something positive because Jesus came walking out of a door one day. He gives us the gift of the resurrection of hope. I love what Paul continued to say over and over again. You know, as I mentioned, I joke with you. I mean, one of the first things that Paul would do was he'd go into town and he would go find the jail because he knew he was going to end up there, Right? He knew he was going to end up there. And yet over and over again, when Paul was talking to me, he would talk about the suffering that he would endure, but he would count it all as a positive thing, a game for Jesus Christ. Why would he say that? And you say, listen, how did he, he get to that point? And this is how Paul 
I mean, even when he was writing, even in prison, there were times in which he was waiting to be executed, thinking he was going to be executed, and yet he still talked about this peace that goes beyond all understanding, about having this joy of Jesus Christ. That is just mind-boggling to me, right? I love this quote about suffering. I found this this last week. It's from Frederick Beatner, and he talked a little bit about Suffering is not God's desire for us, but it occurs in the process of life. Suffering is not given to teach us something or a lesson, or a lesson but through it we have what we may learn. Suffering is not given to teach others something, but through it that they may learn. Suffering is not given to punish us, but sometimes it is the consequences of our sin or poor judgment. Suffering does not occur because our faith is weak, but through it our faith may be strengthened. God does not depend on human suffering to achieve his purposes, but sometimes through suffering, his purposes are achieved. Suffering can either destroy us or it can add meaning to our life. Frederick Beekner. Man, that's good. So um, this morning, four o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, I started thinking about this. Something that was said... You know, because once again, I had this image. I mean, we have, aren't we all gone through something in our life? And, and the question is, when something, this trials or the tribulation, this testing of faith has happened in our life, and everybody's gone through it, how are we going to come out? Because once again, it can either, um, I had wrote this down, the idea, um, it, uh, the testament, it can either lure us away from God or it can pull us towards God. Let me say that again. The testing of faith, the trials and tribulations, it can either mature us and it can either lure us away from God or it can pull us towards God. So when I went through my own kind of crisis in life, you know, back in um, 2019 and with this horrific car accident, you know what, I, you know, I, I look back and reflect upon that. This was one of the pivotal points in my life so far. But you know what? God took that and did something really good out of that for me personally. Now, let me, I'm going to just share briefly. This is my journey, but everybody has their own journey. So here's what we think. How could God take that and turn something so horrific and positive? And here's what I learned from that experience. You ready? I learned, and I think it's made me a better father. I think it's made me a better husband. I think it's made me a better pastor. And this is what it's done for me. It's made me more sympathetic and compassionate towards other people and their pain. So here's, I love this quote, the idea that sometimes we can find purpose in our pain. Can I amen on that? Y'all with me? Sometimes we can find purpose in our pain. I love that. It's a great quote. Sometimes we can find purpose in our pain. And so the, the idea of me being in a hospital bed, I was always the one who was in control. I was always the one who was going to go be Joe Preacher. I was the one who went and prayed over people. But I tell you what, it's so different when you're in the hospital bed and you're lying there and you're in pain and you're suffering. And let me tell you something. I have a whole lot better understanding about pain and suffering, and now I'm more empathetic and compassionate to other people's pain and suffering. And I tell you what, I would never have that had I not gone through that experience. And I know for a fact that's made me a better person. 
So in my life, I mean, this is a beautiful thing, isn't it? That sometimes God can take something that's horrific in our lives. He can take it in the midst of our suffering and pain. And maybe we're in this dark place and we've all gone through our dark places, but God in the power of the gift of the resurrection, Jesus in his own pain and suffering, not my will, but thy will be done. God can take something as horrific as the cross and he can redeem it because we have the gift of the resurrection. And the gift of the resurrection, we always have hope. We have love. We've got costly grace. That's what we have. I believe that. So at four o'clock in this morning, I was thinking about something, my friend, uh, Lynn Sweet. I know that y'all are saying, land a plane, Harold. It's 959. Okay. And I know the choir's looking at the numbers up there. Okay. I'm going to land a plane. All right. Here we go. Right. So at, not, at, at four o'clock this morning, this is what I thought about my friend, uh, Lynn Sweet. Lynn Sweet, I heard him speak about 30 years ago. This is before Lynn Sweet became really, really big. So uh, Lynn's a very good friend of mine. And I'll never forget he talked about about the Japanese culture. And then there's this thing called kintsugi, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. It's the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold. Matter of fact, here's a picture of it, right? Can you put that? Built on the idea that in embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger and more beautiful piece of art. Every break is unique, and instead of repairing an item like new, the 400-year technique actually highlights the scars as part of the design. Using this as a metaphor for healing, it teaches us something important about life. Sometimes in the process of repairing things that have been broken, we actually recreate something more unique and more beautiful and resilient. And the title, I think, of Len Sweet's sermon 30 years ago was Being Strong in the Broken Places of Life. Mm. So I, I come full circle today, um, Sam Bennett. He's going to weigh, I don't know, maybe in a couple months he'll become a professional golfer. But last Sunday, you know what? He was on the top of the world. He's the best amateur golfer in the whole world. And every single time he looks down at his arm, he reminded, he's reminded of something that his father said. Don't wait to do something don't wait to do something like, well, wait a minute. Care for your neighbor down the street. Make a difference in a child's life. Feeding the hungry. Volunteer. Feed, read your Bible. Invite someone to go to church. Just do the right thing. And maybe just open the door of your heart to Jesus Christ. And let him lead the way allowing him to bring healing and wholeness to your life, to allow him to make you strong in the broken places.